18, and it will go on through chapter 16, verse 4. But before we get there, we will begin with a word of prayer. Father God, we look to you for truth, God. We look to you for salvation. We look to you for direction. And we look to you for satisfaction. God, you are the source of all of those things. And you have made known to us the path of those things. And we know that that is through your Son, Jesus Christ. So God, we thank you today and always for the salvation purchased through your Son, Jesus Christ. Through his blood, his death, his payment for sin, and his resurrection on the third day, showing that you have accepted the punishment he received as our own. Lord God, I pray that this truth would not just be something we memorize to know or even believe, but something to be changed by. So God, I pray that today, even as we look at your word, you would again inspire us to abide in Christ, to remain in him, to draw on him, to obey him, and to love him. Lord, I pray all this in your son's holy name. Amen. Before we get to the passage, I just want to remind you of where we've been so far in this series. We're uh, currently today in, in the, our ninth and final message in this series uh, called Like a Tree. And I would uh, tell you, actually, uh, a couple of those um, sermons are actually online if you miss them. All of them are online if you miss them. But some of them happened in our evening services. And so if you don't come to evening services, you can find those online, the part twos. There was one to, uh, for prayer and one for community um, I'm not sure if there were others. I, I, I don't remember any others, but that, that's what we have. I hope you'll check those out. Uh, but we've been looking at this like a tree, that, that God wants you and I to be like a tree. This is his grand vision for us. Not that we would be, you know, weak and wavering and joyless, but rather that we would be like a strong tree drinking from these streams of water, bearing fruit in due season, our leaf not withering. And he would have us be, as we see, that's, that's from Psalms 1, he would have a, us be, from John 15, like a branch abiding in the vine, drawing our life, drawing um, our, our knowledge, drawing our transformation from him, and through that, bearing fruit and in experiencing the joy of Christ. Last week, we looked at the role of love in, in Christian community. And that is to, to love one another, fellow Christians love one another, in order to help them abide in Christ. That, that is, to help them uh, be encouraged in their faith, to help them trust Him, to help them repent of sin and see the supreme value and worth of Jesus, that they may grow and bear fruit. And we said even uh, con conversely, they, they end up helping us. They end up helping us to abide. So we should be seeking that highest good of the other, Jesus said. This is my commandment that you love one another. But now, uh, we, we come to verse 18, as we'll read in a moment, in John 15. And Jesus is going to shift gears rather abruptly. And, and what's happening here is Jesus is going to turn from our, our, just our, our relationship primarily with him, and then he looked at our relationship with our fellow believers, and now he's shifting to our relationship with the world around us. That, that, so he's going to shift gears rather abruptly. And just to set it up for you to, to remember kind of what's going on is Jesus has told us, Hey, Christian, 
I have loved you with the same love with which the Father loves me. That's verse 9. He's told us to obey his commandments that we might abide in and experience that love and experience the joy of Christ. That's uh, verse 10 and 11. And then we, as we talked about last week, as we experience this love, we love one another. We build one another up. We encourage one another in Christ. And so that's where we've been. That's kind of where we ended in verse 17. And so you might expect with all that love, with all that joy, that Jesus is going to say, and now it's time to get around with your friends around a campfire and sing Kumbaya. You know, uh, and then they lived happily ever after. Maybe that's what Jesus will say. You know, abide in me, enjoy my love, love one another, and you're going to be on easy street. That's, that might be what we'd expect Jesus to say next. But is that what he actually says? No. Jesus is about to lay out for us how the world is going to respond to our abiding in Christ. He's going to show us, hey, as you push into Jesus, as you start to look like Jesus and love like Jesus, this is how the world is going to respond to that type of life and to that type of love. And then he's going to show us how we are to respond to the world. That's what we'll be looking at today from John chapter 15 and then just the, the beginning of uh, chapter 16 there. So we'll, we'll read it now. John chapter 15, beginning in verse 18. Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. Chapter 16, oh no, I'm sorry, verse 26. But when the helper comes, whom I will send to you from the father... The Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. Chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you, that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. That is God's word, and that is what we can expect from the world. As you abide in Christ, seek him wholeheartedly, draw from him experience his love, experience his joy, and, and love one another, you can expect not sitting around and singing Kumbaya, not easy street, not living happily ever after. You can expect that the world will hate you. They will persecute you according to Jesus. So that is number one, if you're uh, following along in, in your um, <clears throat> outline there. What will be the response of the world? You will be hated by the world. You will be hated by the world. Now I think I uh, need maybe to, to define a couple of things, explain a couple of things so that there's no confusion here. I want us to understand what's going on. Um, the, the first thing I want to define is the world. What does Jesus mean when he says the world? 
who or what is this that will hate us? You know, think about the world. Well, I mean, is that talking about the natural created order, right? Uh, Acts 17.24 says, God created the world and everything in it. So is, is Jesus saying here that trees and rocks are going to hate you and persecute you? No, that, that's not what Jesus is talking about. And, and the, the world, this word world, is used this way many times in Scripture. Um, I'll just give you one example that might help clarify this a little bit. 1 John 2.15 and 16 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, now he's going to define it for us, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And Jesus even talked about there in John 15 that that these people of the world are those who have seen me and hated me. They've hated me and they've hated the Father consequently. Therefore, they will hate you. So to define the world would be, this is unredeemed, unregenerate mankind. Those who are still dead in their trespasses and sins. Those who are still following uh, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and pride of life. That, that pride of life is, is glorifying oneself rather than God. That is who the world is, and that uh, inherently contains within it this, this hatred for God. God, don't, don't keep me from doing what I want to do. Don't, don't, don't try to be Lord of my life. And anything that threatens that, that autonomy, that ability to sin, frustrates them, and they, they hate it, and they revolt against it. But we understand that we're still in the world, right? Jesus said in his prayer in John 17, verses 15 and 16, he says to Father God, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So, so you and I, we have been brought out of this world system, but we are still in the world, right? I mean, you could think about it. That's why Paul says things like, do not be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the... Don't, don't be conformed into being more like the world, Right? Have, you, have your mind transformed by Jesus, by the gospel, by, by his truth? Because you, you were once in the world. Yes, that was you. But I, you, Jesus says, I have taken you out of the world. So, this is who the world is. The world is, is unregenerate mankind. People who are, are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. They will rebel against Christ, they will rebel against the gospel that says not only believe and be saved, but repent and believe. You've got to repent and turn from your sin. You have to lay down your life that you might take up the life of Christ. They rebel against that. And Jesus says, because of that, they will hate Christians. So that's what we have going on here. Now, another question we might have that I want to clarify is, well, which Christians is Jesus saying will experience this hatred and, and this persecution? You know, is, is this uh, just some Christians in some places doing some things that will elicit this response from unbelievers? I, I ask that question because look at the beginning of verse 18. Verse 18, Jesus says, If the world hates you, Know that it, hated, it has hated me before it hated you, if the world hates you. So he kind of puts this, this uh, contingency there. If, if this happens to happen, you know, if you happen to be hated, uh, then know that it hated me before you. So is that what Jesus is saying? That maybe missionaries who, who go off into savage jungle areas, that maybe they'll be hated, maybe they'll be persecuted. Or, or maybe Christians that go into uh, a heavily uh, Muslim context, maybe they'll be hated and persecuted. Uh, you know, maybe these prominent pastors will, re will receive hate mail and death threats. 
I don't get those, by the way. <laughs> Not prominent enough. So, but is that what this is talking about? Is this just some Christians? Well, Jesus answers that question. I do think it's a good question. We really need to think about it, by the way, before I get to the answer. We really need to think about this question because if this is just for some Christians to experience, then, then if we don't feel the sting of, of hatred and persecution, then we really shouldn't give it a second thought. Well, well I guess it's just for other Christians. Not, it's not me. But if this is expected and prophesied, this is a prophecy, a promise by Christ, if this is expected for every Christian, it should probably give us pause if we never experience hatred or persecution. We, we, we should maybe wonder, why is it that the world who hates Christ finds it so easy to love me? You know, Jesus said up there in uh, verse um, 19, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Hmm. So if the world seems to, to love you as its own, then maybe we should wonder, well, maybe I am being conformed to the image of this world a little more than I would like to admit. So, what is the answer here? Is, is this an if? Is this, does that mean that it's just some people, some Christians? Well, Look at what Jesus does say there in, in, in the rest of verse 19. We'll read the, the, all of verse 19. He says there, If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That's a definitive statement. Well, this if is basically, well, you're either... In, uh, of the world and therefore the world loves you or you're not of the world because I've chosen you out of the world therefore the world hates you and you might think well maybe I just don't know about their hatred maybe I, I just don't feel it you know you can hate someone just on the inside maybe it just stays there but look at verse 20 what he says it doesn't just stay inward hatred he says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and they did, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. So you have kind of two categories there. Those who kept my word, they're, they're going to be fine with you. Those who have trusted me, they're going to be fine with you. But those who have persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. You should be expecting that if, if, if the godless world, as it were, as we're saying here, if they persecuted the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ, who was perfect in every way, who, who went about into all the villages and all the cities healing people of their, their physical illnesses, they persecuted him, they're going to persecute you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they, if they hated the master, how much will they hate and malign and badly treat the servant, namely us? But again, the question is, are our lives so different that it elicits this response from the world? Uh, I guess it was last week, Sonny reminded me of a good quote, uh, an old quote, uh, it goes something like this. It says, If Christianity were illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you? If, if Christianity were, were illegal, would there be enough evidence to convict you that you are actually a Christian and therefore you know, worthy of this punishment? Now, I, I don't think we have to uh, wait until Christianity becomes illegal or go to a place that Christianity, Christianity is illegal to find the answer to that question. Because Jesus says, if you are not of this world, then the world will hate you. If you are not of this world, if you're abiding in me, then they will persecute you. So if you want to know the answer to that question, if Christianity were, Christianity were illegal, would they have enough evidence uh, to, 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 to prosecute you, to convict you? Well, just look at your life now. Does the people of the world, do they seem to love you? 
Or does there seem to be some, some hatred, some animosity, some um, persecution? Now, I'm, I'm not saying that you'll necessarily be, be beaten and nailed to a cross in the same way Jesus did, but there should be something there that they just don't like because they're living in sin. You remember that the light comes, came into the world and people uh, rejected the light because they loved the darkness. And so you're the light of the world, friend, Jesus says. You are the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. Therefore, when you walk into a room and live your life the way that you should, a, Christ, or a non-Christian, a person of the world who loves the darkness and hates the light, they, they should probably be a little bit um, repelled by you, repulsed by, by your um, holy life, your different life. So that's our first point. You will be hated by the world. And that really is kind of twofold there. You should expect this. That's the first part. You should expect that the world will hate you and persecute you. And, and on the second part, if that's not the case, we should probably wonder why that is. Maybe we're not quite abiding deeply enough. Maybe we're not acting on that abiding quite enough. And I, I'm not looking to guilt anyone to this, and I'm not trying to tell you to go out and look to be persecuted, but I do think it's something worth um, thinking about. Is my life kept so safe that this persecution could, possibly, uh, could, could never possibly happen? So, that's how the sinful world will respond to us with hatred and persecution. So now we turn to, well, what should our response be then? When, when they treat us this way, what should our response be? This is uh, number two in your notes. You are to respond with faith. You are to respond with faith. So when persecution comes, when, when people hate you, when they talk badly about you, try to harm you because of your faith, you should actually respond with more faith. This is actually this is how you respond to God, I would say, in this situation. Why do I know that? Well, chapter 16, verse 1 that we read a moment ago, after Jesus gives this discourse, he says, I have said all these things, to keep you from falling away. I have said all these things, told you about this hatred and this persecution, to keep you from falling away. Now, that, that, that may be interesting, you know, usually if you want to keep someone from falling away, you tell them all the good things about it, right? Here's what you'll experience. It'll be lovely. It will be great. But in this case, he's saying, hey, life is not going to be easy for you. You will face hatred, you will face persecution, and I'm telling you this so that you won't fall away. I think that's, that's so interesting. Well, how does that work? How would telling us that we're going to face this hatred and persecution possibly keep us from falling away? Well, I, I think it's uh, got a couple dynamics to it. I think first, Jesus is setting uh, realistic expectations for us um, so that we'll, we'll count the cost. Do, do I really want to live this life? And if I want it, then I, I, I just have to accept it, that this is part of it. So Jesus is giving us realistic expectations. Jesus says um, in the parable of the sower, Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 and 21, he's explaining the parable rather. He says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, the seed that was sown on rocky ground, as, well, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. Jesus is guarding us against this. That, that we would you know, accept Christ with joy because he'll make my life so good. But then tribulation and persecution comes and we say, okay, that's not what I bargained or what I um, you know, was buying into. He's giving us realistic expectations. Jesus wants the type of follower that says, Jesus, I will take you on the good days and the bad days. I will take you uh, when people love me, and I will take you when people hate me uh, for your name's sake. But secondly, I would say there's another reason Jesus would tell us this, and that it would keep us from falling away. And that is, he wants us to know that he is in control 
and that all this is happening according to his plan and purpose. Jesus wants you to know that when persecution comes, that it's not out of his control. And he says, oh no, oh no, oh no, this is happening to my people. No, he is in control and it is a part of his purpose and it's a part of his plan. Where do I see that? Look at uh, chapter 15, verse 25. Chapter 15, verse 25. This is right after he describes all this hatred and persecution. He says this, But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. So Jesus is saying, Okay, back in Psalm 69, this was written, this quote, They hated me without a cause, and that was a messianic psalm. And it was foretelling, it was foretelling us that that there would be a savior that came into this world who would be hated by people. He would be persecuted by people uh, by, by no cause of his own. He did no wrong, and yet they still hated him. And so he's saying here, hey, this is what happens to the Messiah. And look what what happens through that. Through the hatred of the people, through the persecution of the people, the purpose and plan of God is carried out. If Jesus were not nailed to the cross by sinful men, there would be no salvation for sinners. If it were not in, in the hearts of people to hate Jesus, although he was perfect and did only good and said only good, then we would not be saved. God used, uh, was in control of, and, and uses the hatred and persecution of these people to uh, make salvation possible. And now Jesus is implying from that, if the servant is not greater than his master, then if God can use uh, Jesus uh, being persecuted and, and, and even killed for his plan and purpose, then he can and will do the same thing for you. When persecution comes upon you, it is not out of God's control. In fact, it is a part of his plan and a part of his purpose. Uh, Tertullian famously said, he said, uh, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. What does he mean by that? Well, what he's saying is when persecution comes on people and, and for their faith and they stick to their faith, it actually incites uh, this, this desire to know, what's that all about? What's this confidence that they have? What's this hope that they have within them? That's what's going on here. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church, and, and God has a purpose and a plan for your persecution and my persecution. We shouldn't flee from it. This is something that should actually inspire our faith. This should cause us to dig into Jesus even deeper. Say, yes, you're in control. And yes, you're doing good things even through this uh, hatred and persecution that is coming upon me. So, Christian, if you're truly abiding in Christ, being conformed to his image, the world will hate you. And what do we do with that information? We respond in faith because God is in control. And now, I want to show how we respond to people. That was how we respond to God. We respond in greater faith. And here's how we respond to people. Uh, Before I tell you the way, I'll tell you there are uh, at least three ways that I can see that we could respond to this type of hatred. We could first, uh, first possibility, we could retaliate. Return evil for evil, hatred for hatred, persecution for persecution. Second way, we could just retreat from the world. I'm just going to kind of hide. I'm going to kind of do my own thing, quickly go to the grocery store, come back home, close the garage door, stay in there, come to church, hang out with my Christian community, then, then go back home. I can retreat from the world. Or we can do this third and final and good way. We can respond with love. So we can retaliate, we can retreat, or we can respond with love when hatred and persecution comes upon us. So that's number three in your notes. You are to respond with love. 
in light of this hatred and persecution that would come upon us, this is not the natural way uh, a fleshly person wants to respond, right? I'll tell you, uh, growing up with two brothers, I, I learned that often uh, we lived by an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, right? You punch me, I'm punching you right back, probably harder. And I mean, that was kind of a rule, like, uh, anyways, that, that is just kind of the way we live. Like, if you, if you hit me hard, I'm going to hit you that much harder. You know, that, that's just the way we think because we were fleshly and, and silly. Um, but listen to how Jesus talks. Matthew 5, Matthew 5, verses 38 to 44, he says this, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, but if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, Turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Now jumping down to verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is the gospel response. By a person who has been changed by Jesus and is abiding in Jesus, we no longer return evil for evil, hate for hate. We love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. So we're going to need some, some gospel help in this, right? This is why it's so important that we are abiding in Christ. There, there, there's just absolutely no way you can genuinely love your enemies or the person who has made themselves your enemy. There's no way you can genuinely love your enemy as they're speaking bad about you, mocking you, hating you, trying to make things hard for you, bad for you. There's no way you can turn around and love them unless the love of Christ is just deeply abiding you in you. There's just no way. In particular, I would say this. As we abide in Christ and we're being hated by the world, we need to remember that we were once enemies of God, hating and despising the gospel and hating others. We can look at them and say, well, that's just what they deserve. Or, I'm not going to do that. I haven't done anything wrong to them. Why would I love them? They've only done wrong to me. Yet we see in Romans 5, uh, verses 6 and 8, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. In verse 8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And that love for us while we were still sinners that, that God showed us should, should free us and fuel us to love others even when they are hating us. That's the way Christ loved you. He didn't love you because you're so lovely. He didn't love me because I'm just so special and kind and nice. No, he loved me and I was his enemy. He, he loved me because he decided to. <laughs> out of the overflow of his glory, out of the overflow of his love and mercy, he decided to place his love upon me and to act on my benefit for my good and his glory. We have to be meditating on the gospel. We have to be abiding in Christ if this type of love is going to not only uh, be within our doors, within the church community, but branching out as a tree into the world. Branching out in love. Branching out and bearing fruit out in the world. This is the only way. So what is it to love those who hate us? Well, last week we designed... Um, we, we uh, defined love as desiring and seeking the highest good of the other. That, that's what it is to love a person. You, you, from your heart, you desire the best thing for them, and you seek the best thing for them. That, that's how you love them. And we also said last week, the highest good for any individual is that they know, love, and trust Christ Jesus. That is the absolute highest good, that they be saved by him, that they enjoy him, that they see his glory. That is the absolute highest good thing for any person. So if we are to love our enemies, then we are to seek their salvation.
salvation, their eternal salvation, rather than their damnation. We might say, well, they deserve it. So do you. You have sinned against God far more grievously than they have ever sinned against you. This is what we need to hear, and this is where Jesus goes. Uh, You can look at chapter 15 in verses 26 and 27. Jesus says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So here we see uh, that, that two times it's, this phrase is used, to bear witness. And you think about that term witness. Where, where does the term witness come from? Now in Christian circles we use it to talk about you know, sharing how we were saved and sharing the gospel. And, you know, but that's not how, where this term comes from, right? This comes from a courtroom setting. This term, uh, martyr race, is, is a, a witness. This is someone who sits on the stand and, and bears witness of what they have seen, what they have heard and experienced about the person who is being uh, prosecuted, right? And so in this case, we are the witness on the stand and, and, and the Holy Spirit, and we'll, we'll get there. And Jesus is the one being prosecuted, and the, the, the jury over here is the world, these lost people. And they are making up their minds largely based upon this witness as to whether or not Jesus is God, whether or not he really accomplished salvation, whether or not he really is valuable and worth laying our lives down to take up his. We are witnesses. And so we, we look, but let's just look at the flow of the way Jesus tells us this. <clears throat> Verse 26, he gives us the first witness. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. So we see there, the first witness is the Holy Spirit. This is the passion of the Holy Spirit, is that Jesus have his name and his fame and his salvation spread to all men. He wants to bear witness about the truth of Jesus Christ. Uh, John 16 verse 8 says of the Spirit, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. This is what the Spirit desires to do. He will bear witness about me. Now the only problem is the Holy Spirit is, well, spirit. He is immaterial. He has no physical mouth, no vocal cords. He is spirit. Now, let me say this. If he wanted a mouth and vocal cords, he could have them. He made a tree talk, uh, you know, a burning bush. So uh, he could do it. But that's not the way he's chosen to do things. So how does the Holy Spirit bear witness to this world of what Jesus Christ has done and the reality of who he is? Well, we see that in, the, in verse 27. And you also will bear witness. This is talking to believers, those who are abiding in Christ. The Holy Spirit is here to bear witness, but he doesn't have vocal cords. You also will bear witness. So so how does that compute, right? Okay, so when we trust in Christ, this is pretty easy logic. When we trust in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to indwell us. 1 Corinthians 3.16 Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The Holy Spirit takes up residence in us. And you can even see in, in Romans 8 that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So he's bearing witness to us as he indwells us. And then we know that he bears witness through us. Not only to us of our salvation and the truth of God, but through us. You can think of Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses. If you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be witnesses for Christ Jesus. Again, a witness is one who is trying to convince the jury of the reality of Jesus trying to convince these lost sinners who are hating us, hating Jesus, hating, you know, uh, everything that we stand for, everything that we live for, we're trying to convince them, 
Look, Jesus is the only way that you can be saved, and he is worth it. He is worth it more than your sin. He is worth it more than your, your, your desires of the flesh and the pride of life. He is worth it. So that is what we are as Christians. Like it or not, realize it or not, Christian, or even the person who wears the name of Christian, you are a witness for Christ Jesus to this lost and dying world. The only question really is whether or not you're a good witness, right? There are good witnesses and bad witnesses in a court case. There are some who who don't quite represent the truth. There are some who can't quite be believed by the jury. So let me just kind of tell you in in a couple um, statements what makes the difference between a good witness and a bad witness. And we could really boil this all down to whether or not we're abiding in Christ because the rest would flow out if we were. So the first thing that makes the difference in us being a good witness. First, character counts in a witness. Character counts in a witness. I'm telling you, this is, this is true. In the court of law, um, even in the old times, shepherds were not allowed to be witnesses in a court case. Because people didn't trust them. It was just during certain time periods, people didn't trust the shepherds. They were kind of the, the, the vagabonds um, lots of times. They were um, not always nice people or educated enough. And so they thought, well, we can't actually, they could say a lot of things, but we, we can't actually believe their witness because they're, they're maybe a bad person or an uneducated person, so we can't believe them. Character counts in a witness, guys. And so again, the world is, is looking to us and they're saying, Can I believe them about this gospel? They say that this gospel is so great that it's transforming. It brings us this hope and joy and peace that we want to obey the Lord. And then they look at our lives and say, eh, I don't know that that's true because it doesn't look like it's happened in their life. I don't know that I can believe them. Or they can look at our lives and say, you know what? There's something to this witness. He might be speaking the truth. Let me just tell you a few ways. We could do this in tons of different ways before the world. But just a few ways that I, uh, I think are, are obvious for us that we do this. First, we do this by love for one another. We, we bear witness to the world of this genuine change as we have love for one another. John 17, 21, Jesus prays um, that, that believers may. He says, all be one. This, this unity that the world may believe that you have sent me. As we are one, as we are unified in love, despite our differences, despite our preferences, despite our personalities, as we are still unified in love and loving one another and building one another up, the world says, okay, maybe Jesus really was sent by God the Father. Maybe he really was who he said he was. So we do this by our love for one another, our character backing the gospel. We do this by our good deeds Matthew 5, 16, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Again, this changed life that is eager to do good. They say, okay, there's something different about them. They seem to be motivated by something different that they might glorify, give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And finally, I would say we do this by loving our enemies. We do this by loving our enemies. We show the validity of the gospel. This change is taking place in our lives as we love our enemies. Again, it's not natural to turn around and say, okay, you slapped one cheek, slap the other. You've taken my cloak here, have my, my tunic as well. To love them and pray for them. Romans 12, verses 19 through 21 says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now that may sound strange, but you need to understand the heaping burning coals on their head is a euphemism for bringing shame upon them, for bringing grief on them that they have sinned against you in this way. 
They show you hatred and, and malign you and talk bad about you, and you show them love. You show them courtesy and kindness and seek their good, and, and shame comes upon them. Grief comes upon them, and our obvious hope there is that godly grief will come upon them and that this will lead them to repent in their, of their sins and trust in Christ Jesus. So the world needs to see our character as witnesses. They're, they're, they're saying, can I believe this person or not? Can I believe their gospel or not? And we do that as we love one another. We do this as we seek good, to do good deeds and as we love even our enemies. We must have a character that matches the gospel. And we can only have this as we abide in Christ. It won't happen any other way. You will not have this type of jerk reaction when someone says something bad about you to respond in love. It won't happen without abiding in Christ. So character counts in a witness, but that's not all. Communication counts in a witness. Communication, words. We have to actually speak words. What good would it be if a witness in a court case had the greatest character, spotless but never said a word. You know, I think if anything, that witness would actually make Jesus look worse because they would say, you know what? He's not even willing to talk about uh, Jesus. He's not even willing to be a witness for Jesus. He says that this is this great salvation, this thing that he loves and and brings him uh, so much joy and happiness. He's not even willing to talk about it. If anything, if we're not communicating the gospel as witnesses, we are making Jesus look even worse. Like he's not worth talking about, and he is. He absolutely is worth talking about. And it is necessary for people's salvation that they not only see a change in our lives, but they understand where it's coming from and how they can have it. Right? They, they say, okay, you go to church, so I guess church makes you like that. Cool, I guess church is a kind of a boot camp that, that knocks sinful people in line. Is that the gospel? I pray that it's not at this church. It is Jesus that transforms us. His death on the cross, his payment for our sins, his righteousness imputed to us, his resurrection from the dead, and our simply trusting in him. Saying, you know what, you're right, God. My sin was wrong. I don't want it. I want you. You are the treasure. And that transforms us. That is the gospel. But people cannot trust in that gospel if they don't hear it from you, no matter how good your character is. Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 13 and 14 says this, For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear it without someone preaching? A witness is no good if they aren't showing where, where, where this change has come in their life. Why they have this character. Why even they're loving their enemies. They need to make the connection. Hey man, uh, I, I know you have some sort of a problem with me. But I want you to know, I'm just going to keep on loving you because that's what Jesus did to me. He he kept coming after me, wanting me, and I I kept pushing him away, trying to do bad to God. I I you know I took his name in vain. I did all sorts of sins, and but he just kept on loving me. And and then you know what? I finally saw that, and I trusted him, and I loved him, and and I I realized that he had paid for my sins, and I realized that that I could just trust in in his death and his resurrection, and I could have salvation and this new freedom and this joy. And so that's what I've done. And so man, I'm just going to keep on loving you. That's that's what's going to happen. People need to make this connection for why we love one another, why we do good deeds, and why we love even our enemies. Character counts in a witness, and communication counts in a witness. This is our high calling as we abide in Christ. This is our high calling. Um, the, The purpose of God saving you is not just so that you can be a part of a Christian community and love one another. That is part of why he saved you, and we talked about that uh, at great lengths last week. That is part of it. But Jesus gave us something that we call the Great Commission, right? He says, uh, Matthew 28, 
all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all peoples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey my commandments, and I will be with you even to the end of the age. You'll be with us doing this, the Spirit bearing witness with our spirit and us bearing witness to the world. This is our great calling as we abide in Christ. Is it going to be easy? Is it going to be fun? That's a, an interesting question and kind of a hard one to answer. I've told some of you this before. Um, I, I, I've faced my fair share of this hatred and this persecution as I uh, received Christ and as he radically transformed me by his grace and by his love. I start acting different, and then I start speaking different, and my friends and other people start to say, man, what are you, what are you some sort of goody two-shoes? You know, I mean, and, and then they stop calling, and they stop answering you know, phone calls, and um, man, that was a hard time in my life. It was. It was not fun. It was not easy. It was not rosy, but I'll tell you, it was actually one of the most joyful times in my life as well, because I, I was doing what God called me to do, and I still pursue doing that, obviously. Um, but there was just one season in my life that it was most heavy, and it was hard, but it was good. Let's think about this. Uh, this is how um, the author of Hebrews puts it. Uh, just picking up in the, the middle of chapter 12, verse 1 of Hebrews, he says, Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. What's the race that is set before us? That we would not fall away, and that we would continue to do all that God has called us to do. We need to respond to this hatred with faith, and we need to respond to this hatred with love, continuing to do what God has called us to do. How do we do that? Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. If you're abiding in Christ and you're obeying Christ, it won't matter the affliction, the hatred, the persecution that's coming on you. You will have a deep abiding joy. We're closing up this Like a Tree series. And so I ask you, do you want to be like a tree today? Do you want to, to carry out God's grand vision for your life? Do you want to be bearing fruit for the Lord? Do you want to be experiencing the love and joy of Jesus in your life day in and day out? And this is a greater joy than anything the world has to offer. Then I would simply say, abide in him. Let his words abide in you. Pray to him. Obey his commands. Love one another and love even your enemies as you branch out like a tree. Let's pray.